Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to What's the Crack? I'm joined here with Dan Werb. Dan, could you give me an explanation of what your title is and what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm the director of the International Center for Science and Drug Policy, um, and I'm also affiliated with the uh, St. Michael's Hospital uh, in Toronto, which is a research institute, and the University of California, San Diego, where I'm on faculty in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health. Can you talk us through some of the work that you've done uh, recently with this institute? Sure. So I do two things, uh, mainly. I work on drug policy on the one hand, and then I work on epidemiology of substance use, mostly focused on injection drug use on the other. Of course, there's lots and lots of overlap. When you start looking at one, you start looking at the other. Um, and uh, so that's those are sort of the two domains of my work. With the International Center for Science and Drug Policy, um, the focus of the work has really been on communicating the scientific evidence around the impacts of drug policy uh, and doing that uh, in as creative ways as we possibly can. Um, sometimes that means undertaking a systematic review or meta-analysis to get at the heart of what the scientific evidence actually says about a question. Uh, and sometimes that means um, engaging directly with policymakers or other stakeholders to make sure that if there is evidence that exists, that they that it is presented to them in a way that they can appreciate. Great. And um, with the International Center of Science... Of Science we can call it the ICSDP. ICSDP, for, that's for perfect short. for me. Um, is it a group of just scientists or is it also policymakers? Is it a, a range of different people that are joined in this? So we have a scientific board that is right. made up of these very august uh, mm -hmm. global experts in... Um, bunch of disciplines that sort of touch on drug policy um, and criminology, epidemiology, um, some um, neurologists. And we don't have any policymakers within our own group, although some academics move on to uh, policymaking and then move back and vice versa. Yeah. Um, but we do have, through our extensive network, which uh, is global in, in a lot of ways, we do have pretty good access to um, policymakers in a bunch of different places. Great. As I guess more broadly, what do you think is the most pressing drug problem that you're dealing with at the moment? Well, it depends on where you are situation mm. or geographically. Uh, in North America, it's absolutely the uh, massive increase in overdose deaths. Getting to the heart of why that's occurred um, and trying to determine ways to prevent it um, from continuing is the biggest issue um, here. And while we do try to be global, um, you know, we're, we're often 
um, influenced by what's happening close to us. Here we are in Toronto and uh, Canada is experiencing this problem. So, you know, we, mm. we get motivated um, to, to, to look into it. Um, I would say globally, you know, the, it's difficult to maintain enthusiasm sometimes, but because there is such a deadlock when you look at drug policy, there are these, there's this emerging um, cadre of uh, countries that want to um, more fully embrace or at least explore um, less criminalized uh, policies that uh, are moving away from criminalization, be that just decriminalization or regulation or um, even scaling up public health interventions within a more broad criminalization um, structure. Um, but on the other hand, there are countries like um, Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, Thailand, Russia, uh, that are basically mired in and totally committed to policies that are super detrimental for a number of different reasons um, and that really rely on enforcement, sometimes military force, brute force, extrajudicial, extrajudicial killings. Uh, in the case of uh, the Philippines right now. Yeah, I was going to say that was quite recently in the media, wasn't it? Well, yeah, and it's continuing. Mm -hmm. um, and the concern there is, like so many things, um, so many different sectors, there's a point at which evidence doesn't matter. Um, and so when you talk about urgency, it's tough because it's an urgent problem, but it's one that, you know, the solutions are extremely limited. Would you say that you said with it, with Canada, it being mainly the uh, overdose situation at the moment, is that currently not masking, but being still predominant over, say, the cannabis legalization that's happening now? I remember seeing, I think it was an, with an interview with uh, Justin Trudeau when they were talking about cannabis legalization and then someone put their hand up and said, yeah, but you're forgetting about this opioid crisis that's happening. It, would you say that that was, it is kind of, over and above the cannabis legalization situation? Or? You know, it's interesting. I think um, the government invested a lot. So the federal government mm -hmm. here I'm talking about in Canada invested a lot of time and resources and manpower into establishing this process of bringing cannabis legalization forward. Mm -hmm. They came in. It was a key political uh, promise. And they had a deadline of doing it, and they wanted to stick to that deadline because of the nature of the political cycle. And so up front, you saw lots and lots of um, government resources. And here, you know, I mean like staff in government agencies uh, in the federal government being um, seconded to work on the issue of cannabis legalization. We had the federal task force on um, cannabis regulation and legalization struck. There was this process of consultation and that sort of that cycle ended and near the end of that cycle. And so that cycle ended and um, with it, the federal government's responsibility, I think actually they could move that on to the provinces and territories. Mm -hmm. Right. So the federal government set its framework. Now it's up to the provinces and territories to work within that framework to set up their um, infrastructure. So in a way, I think that might have freed up resources from the government to then focus on the opioid overdose crisis. And this is not like they were doing one thing and they were doing another. But I think you, at least I observed as an outsider with some vantage point that, um, you know, increasingly we're seeing from the federal government a, a more clear focus on opioid overdose 
uh, response. Okay. It's not like one was ever... It's not like one wasn't there and then it was and the other disappeared, but there is a very clear shift in, at least at the federal level, yeah, that their interest has shifted to tackling the overdose crisis. Great. And I believe that you are the principal investigator of uh, Primer, which is a study looking at uh, injecting drug use. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So this, I was motivated with this study um, by looking at injection drug use and all the sort of um, potential um, risks that people face when they start to inject, many of which I will um, caveat are um, amplified at the very least by um, the policies of criminalization that in, in fact place people at greater risk than the drug use would in, uh, in and of itself. So you think about um, injection drug use uh, within the context of criminalization. There are very good and rational reasons why someone who injects drugs would not carry their own syringes because that would place them at risk of arrest then they would go to prison. And so the sort of more abstract risk of sharing a syringe with someone and um, being infected with HIV as a result uh, might go down on the sort of um, hierarchy of risks that they're avoiding. So looking at inje- in, but looking at injection drug use and the fact that, yes, it is associated with risks such as overdose, such as um, bloodborne disease transmission, not only HIV, but hepatitis C uh, is, um, you know, much more virulent than um, HIV, much more easily um, transferred through uh, injection than HIV. And um, the limits of current uh, disease prevention and overdose prevention efforts. So you can't, it's very difficult to reduce all the risks associated with injecting to zero, um, particularly again within a context of criminalization. Um, But what you could do uh, is eliminate those risks if you were able to eliminate uh, people transitioning from non-injection drug use to injection drug use. Now, to date, the um, evidence on uh, interventions that can actually do that is super limited. Um, There has, we did a systematic review a couple years ago and found that there had only ever been eight studies evaluating um, interventions to prevent injection drug use. All of those were behavioral interventions. Only four of those evaluations found uh, that there were any positive impacts. And to date, none have been brought to scale. So in terms of the, you know, it's funny because I think we all just assume that injection drug use, because of its many um, public health implications, is front and center in terms of the government response to preventing drugs. But in actual fact, that, that is absolutely not the case. There is no scaled up and effective policy to prevent people from transitioning from injection or from non-injection into injection drug use. And surely they're a very hard to reach population going from that stage anyway, because it's a, I don't know, I'd say it was a very vulnerable time going from one to the other. Absolutely. And a very time sensitive as well. Yes. Because, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's, it's really difficult to, because the pool of people who are at risk of initiating injection drug use is so large, it's very difficult to create programming or tailor interventions to prevent that transition from that side. But what we do know is that people who already inject drugs often play a critical role in initiating others into this injection drug use process. It's not to say that people 
seek out um, others because they want to initiate them. Um, sometimes, yes, initiation events are um, motivated on the side of the initiator. Um, they can reflect often gendered power dynamics and intimate partnerships. But the majority of what we're seeing from the data is that it's really people who are highly motivated because they've observed injection drug use practices. They've seen positive results from people who they know who have recently initiated, and they would like also to be initiated. So the motivation is often from people who are seeking to be initiated, people who haven't yet started. Whatever the case may be, wherever the motivation may lie, um, people who inject drugs who have already started play this critical role in introducing others. Now, we have better programming for people who inject drugs than we do for the sort of vulnerable and, as you say, hard to reach and even hard to define population of people who are at risk of starting. So um, what we're doing is we're focusing on that population of people who inject drugs, which is a known population, and trying to determine what makes them more or less likely to initiate others into injection drug use. And by doing that, seek to disrupt that um, phenomenon of people being initiated into injecting. And while the interventions to date um, have really focused on behavioral approaches, so trying to build resilience in people who inject drugs to make sure that they can avoid those settings or, or who, so that they can avoid saying yes to initiating others, I would argue that those are potentially quite limited given that when you find yourself in a situation where someone has asked you to inject them for the first time and you say no, they may say, well, I'll just go to someone else. And in fact, you know that person uh, and you know that they're not to be trusted or you know that they don't know how to inject properly or you know that they're not always careful with using clean syringes or they're, you know, there's something that may place this person in danger. You may have a very good and rational reason to say yes to initiating someone else. Um, maybe it's a way to protect them from the unknown, the greater unknown out there. Maybe you think, well, they're so highly motivated, they're going to do it anyway. So at least I can teach them how to do it safely. So I would argue that if we're intervening or seeking to intervene on the moment when people are being asked to initiate others, we're intervening too late. So, you know, I'm, I, I guess I'm sort of crawling up the causal pathway, right? So from trying to prevent overdose and infectious disease transmission after people inject to try to prevent it through preventing the injection in and of itself, then moving from initiating or uh, intervening on the initiation event itself to intervening to actually prevent that moment of initiating from happening in the first place or that moment of potential initiation. In any case, um, one thing that I've been looking at uh, is, again, to try to prevent these these moments where people are being asked to initiate others mm. should try to prevent those moments entirely. Because I think within those moments, there's no good option. You either initiate someone, which isn't something that people generally like to do, or you don't, in which case maybe they're going to go to someone else and uh, you potentially put them at greater danger. So how could we avoid those situations entirely? Well, my hypothesis uh, and what I would suggest is that we can do that through structural intervention, through modifying the environment within which people live, which we, and within which people find themselves, and within which people use drugs. So to give you an example, 
if people, as I mentioned, talking about medication-assisted treatment, if people have opioid use disorders and they are managed appropriately through medication-assisted treatment like methadone or buprenorphine or even prescription heroin, morphine, if people are able to manage their, um, their drug use, they may be, they, they are likely going to be less likely to be in it, to be injecting drug use generally. Like the frequency of their injecting is likely going to reduce or even cease. So if someone's frequency of injection is reduced, then the amount that they expose others to injection drug use practices is necessarily going to reduce as well, um, if not go to zero. And then the normalizing of injecting that they're doing for others who may be can, you know, at risk of starting, that process is going to end. We saw this, I think, this is my theory, is that we saw this in Switzerland. We saw after, now, I, there, this is, again, just a, a theory that I've developed based on the data coming out of Switzerland. But when Switzerland scaled up supervised injection facilities, medication-assisted treatment, needle and syringe programs, basically a public health harm reduction oriented drug policy in 1993 and did so across the country. <clears throat> the proportion of people who inject drugs who reported recently starting to inject dropped from 20% to 3% within seven years wow. and has main, has sustained, has been sustained at that low level. The annual incidence of people initiating injecting dropped from about 850 per year in 1993 to under 50 and has remained there. So there's something about what Switzerland did that, that weakened this process of initiating um, that I believe is driven, or well, I mean, the, the evidence demonstrates, the scientific evidence out there demonstrates is often driven through this exposure piece, right? This exposure to injection piece. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Now, what we're finding with the data that we're collecting 
um, in Primer, which is a multi-site, um, multi-cohort study of people who inject drugs looking specifically at their um, experiences initiating others. What we found is that people who are enrolled in medication-assisted treatment, they have about 50% less lower odds of initiating others into injection drug use compared to people who aren't on methadone. Now, to me, that's super compelling. That suggests, while at this stage it's an observational association, we can't assume causality one way or the other. But I think that there's enough there to at least pursue it further. And it makes plausible sense that if someone is retained in treatment, then they're injecting less, then they're going to be interacting with people who are potentially not yet injecting but might be at risk less within drug use settings, and they may be asked to inject other people less frequently and therefore less likely to be initiating others. So I, that's what I'm pursuing right now, and we're, we're looking not only at medication-assisted treatment but also the potential impact of supervised injection facility use, um, housing status, and other factors like how gender or migration or deportation or um, injecting in public settings, all how all these factors uh, influence people's risk of initiating others. That's really interesting. I saw that um, you were doing it in Vancouver, San Diego, Tijuana, and is it two in France? Four sites in France. Four sites in France. Yeah, so Paris, yeah. Strasbourg, uh, Marseille, and Bordeaux. Okay. I was just wondering why those sites were chosen in the four different countries. So part of it is uh, totally opportunistic. Right. Uh, I put this together when I was a postdoctoral student and right. um, was like, where do I know people who might be willing to introduce mm. survey items into their cohort questionnaires? Mm. But part of it also reflected my interest in, well, it, it's an acknowledgement of the fact that um, epidemics of any kind are driven by local dynamics. So the way that an HIV epidemic moves among a certain population in one setting is going to be different than how it moves through another setting. There are always similarities. We can always pull factors that seem to be driving risk. Um, but they're really important um, situational uh, differences uh, that we need to address. And when you think about Vancouver, San Diego, and Tijuana, those are really interesting settings for a number, or really interesting and distinct settings for a number of reasons. Uh, Tijuana is an under-resourced setting in a middle-income country. Uh, San Diego is a setting where access to medication-assisted treatment is really low. Vancouver is a setting where there's an extremely dense population of people who inject drugs in one 16-square uh, block area of the city, um, but where access to low-threshold medication-assisted treatment is really high. Mm -hmm. Vancouver, unlike those other settings, has a supervised injection facility. France has extremely high coverage of medication-assisted treatment, where, whereas um, it was estimated a few years ago that Coverage for people who were eligible, eligible for medication-assisted treatment in the U.S. was around 8%. Mm -hmm. In France, it's closer to 80. So mm -hmm. there's a, there's a, you know, there's a, there's real important differences that might influence how what I would describe as epidemics of injection drug use move through a population. And you know, um, this is on about injection, injecting drug use. Is it 
specific to opioids or can it be a crystal methamphetamine or is it cocaine and heroin is it any drug that is injected or is it specific to opioids yeah so we're looking at all drugs right um it's really the process of Mm. initiation into this form of this mode of consumption Mm. um that being said medication assisted treatment is only currently available for opioids so heroin and related opioids this is not a study or a line of investigation that's really um, focused on the impact of a particular drug. We're looking at a behavior. So I'm going to move on to a drug policy question for you. Okay. So if you were given a golden ticket for one drug policy to be implemented immediately, what would you choose and why? Well, I would regulate all drugs. That would be a painfully complicated golden ticket. Um, to cash in. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why. You know, at the most, the most basic way of saying this is that, um, you know, consider our current regime, which is largely a system of criminalization. We have a small number of drugs that are regulated. And what's really interesting about those small number of drugs that are regulated is that they are regulated in widely divergent ways. So lots of people say, are opioids illegal in Canada? Well, yes, they are, but also they're regulated. There's heroin prescription that's available um, in uh, Canada in principle. What is heroin prescription? Well, it's this managed opioid use thing where people who have who are opioid dependent um, are able to use heroin, pure prescription pharmaceutical grade heroin, sort of on a managed basis um, through medical supervision and, and medical dosage. And we've seen that it's a really effective way for people who have failed other forms of medication-assisted treatment to manage their use. Now, that looks nothing like our system of alcohol regulation. And a system of alcohol regulation is going to look very different from the way cannabis is regulated across the country. And none of those look anything like tobacco regulation. So what I'm trying to get at here is that the process of regulating drugs is extremely complicated, but it's also quite effective. Or at the very least, it provides policymakers with lots and lots of flexibility to address range of harms that potentially can pop up. Now compare this wildly divergent system of regulation for all these different substances to the way that we deal with street heroin or cocaine or MDMA, or like name any other legal drug. It is identical. They are all identical. And yet, all of those drugs are as distinct from each other as alcohol is from tobacco is from, as that is from cannabis. And it is a real, I mean, in some ways, it is entirely predictable that the bluntest, broadest instrument available, which is the criminalization of drugs, is associated with the worst outcomes. As in, it doesn't stop people from using, and it just takes drug use that could be safer and makes it more dangerous. Now, if we can set up a system of regulation that is distinct for each of those currently illegal drugs and get a sense of how those all work in tandem, because as we know, It's not like the market for regulated cannabis is going to be totally independent of the market for regulated alcohol. Those two markets are going to have impacts on each other as those markets are going to, uh, just as those markets are going to have an impact on regulated tobacco. 
if we can understand how all these markets operate and how they influence each other, and then we can use the very refined and flexible tools of regulation to adapt those systems as need, as necessary to ensure that while we don't end drug use, because that is an unrealistic goal, what we can do is, uh, as has been shown over time, we can incentivize less harmful drug use, like the, the use of drugs that are less harmful, and less harmful forms of use. Um so yeah, it's a yeah. that would be my golden ticket. It would be um, the work of many lifetimes, but uh, I think it's not a totally unrealistic goal at this point, at least in Canada, uh, and one that um, we should strive for. Yeah, do, do you have hope that in our lifetime that it will happen? Um, yes, I do. In which case, that's a very positive way to end. We will end. <laughs> <laughs> but no, thank you so much, Dan, for this interview. Yeah, and thanks for having me. Yeah.